Today, my guest is Dr. Peter Afflerbach, who researches individual differences in reading development, reading assessment, and comprehension. We'll talk about the differences between skills and strategies and why that matters for the classroom, as well as his new book, Teaching Readers Not Reading, in which he argues that factors such as efficacy, motivation, engagement, epistemic beliefs, attributions, and executive functions play a significant role in developing readers. Later, I'm joined by my colleagues Lainey Powell, Leah Leibowitz, and Gina Dignan for a conversation about practical takeaways. This is To the Classroom, and I'm your host, Jennifer Saraballo. Dr. Afflerbach, welcome. It's an honor to meet you and be in conversation with you after all these years reading your work. Well, thanks. Thanks. It's, uh, thank you for inviting me. I look forward to our conversation. Yeah. So I thought we could start with 2008 paper that you wrote with oh. P. David Pearson and Scott Paris titled Clarifying the Differences Between Reading Skills and Reading Strategies. And this <laughs> clarifying the differences between those terms is something I, I talk a lot about. Um, I'd love to ask you a few questions based on it to get us started. So you start off the paper by explaining that you investigated the uses of these terms and found some confusion out there. Can you talk a little bit more about what you found? Yeah, well, just a little background. Um, David Pearson and I used to do a uh, sort of we call it like a tag team series of presentations at IRA in the early to mid 2000s. And we um, we decided for this particular year to look at how strategy and skill were used in the professional literature, both, um, you know, classroom-based research and theory-based. And so we, you know, we, we started with this like really informal polling of our colleagues at the university um, at Berkeley and University of Maryland at College Park. And uh, the responses from all the different people that we spoke with were all over the map. And um, David and I had a real, you know, commitment to the idea that the more we have a common language in the field of reading and literacy, uh, I think the more precise we can be with um, our arguments and presenting evidence and, um, you know, ultimately linking what's meaningful research to effective classroom practice. And so we, um, we, after sort of verifying our hunch that people are using strategy and skill as synonyms and defining them differently, we, we really went into the research literature. So we went, you know, back into the cognitive psychology literature. Um, we went back into the instruction and teaching of reading literature. And um, we used that. Oh, and then we, we, when we actually did our presentation at IRA, it was in San Antonio, I forget the year, but Scott Paris was in the uh, audience and um, he came up to us afterwards and he's, and we had, you know, like a continuing really interesting conversation and we decided we'd try to write a, a manuscript for the reading teacher. So that's, that's like the, the genesis of that. Um, but what we really were focused on is trying to bring some clarity to those two terms, strategy and skill and um, delineate them um, while at the same time um, associating them one with the other. And uh, if I can continue, I mean, what, we, what we ended up doing was arguing that strategies are things that are mindful, that a, a student must be, or an adult, um, must be paying attention to and be in control of, um, as, as opposed to a skill, which is, um, you know, what we sometimes hope for with our reading and our students' reading, which would be the 
automatic or near automatic calling up use and successful use of, of something like um, recognizing a word, decoding a word, um, figuring out a, an unfamiliar vocabulary word. Reading comprehension strategies are invisible. And how do you teach something that's invisible? And so you know, we know that uh, a proven approach to strategy instruction would include explanation, modeling, and thinking out loud. And so if David and Scott and I are arguing that strategies are um, conscious, step-by-step um, -step sometimes um, approaches to trying to figure out what a text means, then if we're able to sort of deconstruct an act of reading and break it into its individual comprehension strategies, and then look at each of those strategies and then break them down further so that we make that invisible visible to our students, then, then we're on, on a good track. And, you know, at the same time, the, you know, the holy grail or the, the prize at the horizon would be that when we teach strategies well, that our student readers will be um, practicing and using them successfully to the point where they get more and more skillful. Here's where the skill part comes in. And, and sometimes approach that automaticity because, you know, we know that um, one of the constraints that every human being has in terms of uh, cognition and cognitive operations is working memory. And when, you know, working memory gets jammed up because a kid is applying strategies to decode a word or to um, make an appropriate inference from a, a text where the author hasn't provided all of that information, um, that can jam up working memory. So the more we become skillful with our strategies, the more space we have to do those little things like remembering what the heck we're reading is all about and remembering what was the goal of reading in the first in the first place. Yeah, thank you. So it sounds like, um, yeah, the, the terminology is just so critical because um, we've got to know exactly what we're doing and be precise about it in the classroom. Yeah. And to me, strategies are really about explicitness of being really clear, like you said, making the yeah. invisible visible, breaking things yeah. down into clear steps for students. So if right. we know that that is a good practice and we have a name for it, then we're more likely to include that in lesson plans and we're more likely to be deliberate as teachers about, yeah. about supporting students with it. Yeah. I think the, where the biggest divide in terms of um, people using the term skill and strategy comes down at the decoding level, um, sound symbol matches, um, consonant blends, you know, all that stuff. But we know that beginning readers do need to have strategies because they, um, they don't automatically see the CL consonant blend and say, Cluh. you know, they, they have to be able to bring those things together. And that's very strategic thinking. It's very strategic reading. So your new book um, out just last year is, is called Teaching Readers Not Reading, Moving Beyond Skills and Strategies to Reader-Focused Instruction. So let's start with just what do you see as the main difference between teaching readers versus reading? It's a very provocative title. Yeah, well, um, this is, so I've been, uh, I've, I was first an elementary uh, reading specialist in 1979. Um, and I taught up in the Adirondack Mountains in upstate New York. And I had students who I thought I was doing a decent job of teaching things like sound symbol correspondences. I was a K, K through six chapter one teacher. So I had, you know, kindergarten through sixth grade. And um, it, it became really apparent to me really quickly that um, strategy and skill instruction 
wasn't going to um, turn these kids around on their own. Children thrive in classrooms um, when all of their um, individual differences, and that would be you know st- both strengths and needs, are attended to. And my concern over the years, and then it really came to a point the last few years with the rise of the um, science, that's a singular, science of reading movement, that um, is, I think, often interpreted. And, and certainly if you look across the country where state legislators are picking up on uh, um, what they believe to be the science of reading, that all we need is a really strong phonics program and, and things will fall into place. And I, I'd be the last person to argue against the importance of phonics, but I'd also be the first person to argue that that doesn't guarantee much of, of anything except a child who might do very well on a phonics subtest or a phonics skill test. So um, this, this idea of teaching readers not reading is, is one where I saw too much of uh, trying to fit children into a reading program as opposed to trying to fit the reading program into a child's uh, totality. You know, like what, mm-hmm. what's their um, emotional profile? What's their um, level of motivation and engagement? Um, in general, but also specifically to, you know, is the child reading something that's of interest or is it something that's demanded by the curriculum? Is the child reading to then share with a close group of friends so that we're bringing in the whole social aspect of why we read in the first place? Or is it detached to answer four multiple choice questions or 10 multiple choice questions? And to to fast forward to what I think I was just saying, um, I get really upset with the idea that there's one science of reading Um, and that this one science of reading, um, you know, like jumped out of the forehead of the no child left behind movement and the national reading panel report, because, um, if we ignore affiliated fields of research that can tell us a lot about being effective teachers and about how children thrive in addition to how children learn, I think we're just setting up instruction to be much more effective. And so, um, in in the book, Teaching Readers Not Reading, there are individual chapters dedicated to things like metacognition, motivation, engagement, self-efficacy, um, attributions, and epistemic knowledge. And if if you look at really successful, thriving, lifelong readers, all of those things are operating. They tend to be operating in a, a very sort of um, symbiotic and positive way. And um, if you look at struggling readers, excuse me, in the classroom, what you see is um, all of those things sort of ganging up on the individual reader and dragging them down. I like to point out that um, the research in that volume is at least a quarter of a century old because it was released 23 years ago and it was a synthesis of uh, published research. So, you know, I, I think any vibrant science is one that is continually evolving and holding on to um, replicated um, understandings, you know, and but also yes. changing understandings. And um, you know, an ex- a couple of examples would be: I have a chapter that focuses on metacognition, and you're, you, I'm sure you know Palingsor and Brown's work from yeah. the mid 1980s. So this is like five or six years before the National Reading Panel report came out, and what it it actually way before that, 10 or 15 years. And what it told us was that metacognition is not only important, but if you do a good job teaching it, you can change the lives of 
struggling middle school readers, which like if you've taught middle school, that, which I have, that was the hardest job I ever had. You know, like think about a seventh, eighth and ninth grader who's been pretty worn down across their academic career, um, often populating the low reading group or whatever animal we call a low reading group, trying to hide the fact from them. And, mm-hmm. and so we've known about metacognition since the late 70s as a powerful influence on human performance. And um, I also, I don't want to figure out how old Carol Dweck is, but I remember in graduate school reading about attribution theory, which, which derived from locus of control and social psychology back in the 1950s. And if you know attribution theory, you know that human beings who are in situations where they have time to reflect on what's going on um, will make attributions for their performance outcomes. And we know that struggling students often make attributions like this, like the teacher doesn't like me, the book was too hard, or heaven forbid, and I'm just using this word because I've heard students say, I can't read because I'm stupid. And, and once, once a child is, is locked into a particular attribution view of why they perform the way they do, it's really hard to undo that. But I was reading about that in the 1970s in graduate right. school. Right. And that really predates the national reading panel. And um, self-efficacy, you know, like, and so the, the idea here is the sciences of reading to me is a much more legitimate, much more powerful corpus of work from which to draw as opposed to the science of reading. So let's get back to the focus of the the book about motivation, engagement, self-efficacy, attribution, all of those. And let's just take one of them. And I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about um, what the science says about this particular area. You touched a little bit here and there on it. Um, And what teachers can do. Like, how do we actually help kids who we identify as needing support in this particular area? Let me start with self-efficacy, okay? Okay, um, yeah. And, and also say that um, if you were to like draw a nice chart um, with strategies and skills in the middle and, and around you surrounded, you say that's, that's a, one of the sciences of reading, excuse me, and then you would put self-efficacy, motivation, engagement, metacognition, attributions, epistemic development around that cent- center cell. Um, what, what you would see in the real time of a successful reader reading is interactions between all of these things. So, and those interactions are happening prior to any active reading, during an active reading and after an active reading. So, you know, the, the self-efficacious reader or the reader in second grade or third grade who has high self-efficacy is, um, is going to be motivated to read. When we care about something, we pay better attention to it in general. And so that kicks in the metacognitive part or that that particular science of reading. And um, when we're metacognitive, we we have a better sense of how things are operating in whatever undertaking we're involved in. If we're metacognitive about our reading and it's going well, um, the attributions that we make for our performance will tend to be more positive and internal as opposed to negative and external. Um, meaning, I, I, I think I read well because I've, I've been learning how to read and I gave effort. That's a nice positive internal set of attributions as opposed to uh, the teacher really doesn't like me or I'm stupid or I'm unlucky, which are negative external um, attributions. 
And then, um, you know, as kids move through elementary school, we can think about something like epistemic growth kicking in when we ask kids to start um, evaluating authors' work and critiquing their classmates' writing in, a, of course, a friendly, constructive way. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, th- that helps teach them that knowledge is fungible sometimes and that it's, um, it's not always the case um, that, that what you read or what you hear is true. It's, it's not only that these are powerful individually, but they, they interact with one another. And before I get in depth to any of them, um, one of the things that I, I do in the book is I bring out um, the notion of the Matthew effects in reading from back in the mid 80s from Keith Stanovich. And, you know, he, he was interested in how some elementary school students just like grew exponentially, you know, like they were unstoppable as readers. And what he found was this reciprocal relationship between vocabulary and comprehension and that a child's decent vocabulary accumulation of words allowed them to access and understand increased amount of text. Reading increased amounts of text contributed to vocabulary growth. So, you know, it's like this just bit, this big symbiotic positive thing. Going. Virtuous cycle. Yeah. But what I just described was it, it's not just strategy and skill operating there. It's not just reading specific knowledge. It's like if, if a child in first grade is having success, that child, he, she, or they will go back to something that has bought happiness that has probably bought positive recognition from teacher, maybe peers and parents. And, um, and that will in general have a child more closely attend to what they're doing. So the metacognition kicks in, um, self-efficacy is blooming because nothing succeeds like success. So it's, um, it's a lot of stuff that is closely related that I, I think is the essential wraparound to something like skill and strategy, instruction and learning. I love that visual of it being, it just sort of encapsulates it all. It's like you can't get through into the other stuff until there's an attention paid to this and that there's reciprocal relationships between um, yeah. between all of it. So, you know, so what yeah. do I do if I'm a teacher and I identify, oh gosh, I've got this fifth grader who's had maybe negative experiences with reading so far, maybe has never yeah. gotten to choose his own books or hasn't had access to books or... Right. Um, maybe hasn't been as successful in his peers as reading below grade level. So now the books that he could read, he's not really interested in reading. Right. What do I do? How do I support that sort of child? What does the research say that's helpful there? I always thought like my my best teaching successes were when I communicated through words and actions to students that I was in it for them, you know, like yeah. that they could trust me. That that's always to me the the foundation of effective instruction, and the thing that does turn around low self efficacy is a continued um, series of success experiences. Consistency is is needed to help undo what may be a long standing self concept within the kid's head. A- another thing is um, self efficacy research shows a social persuasion can be very powerful, and that's. You know, that's a teacher on the side saying, I know you can do it. Another thing that um, one of my really close friends in the field, Peter Johnston, has written books about this. And it's um, when we choose our words to talk with children, you, you can say, great job, great job. But the more specific you are, like, I really appreciate that you bore down because you're giving effort. Um, 
that's making specific link between the student's performance and what you're seeing in that performance. Um, I really, I really appreciated that you, you thought before you acted about what strategy here would best help you understand what the author's trying to say. And that not only can build self-efficacy, which contributes to motivation and engagement, but it feeds that metacognitive growth also, because as, as we're explaining our view of the things they're doing, um, they probably can't do that because their working memory is so fully involved with try, you know, trying to figure out what does the text say in the first place, especially with our struggling readers. So again, it's, it's that what, what are the things that are intertwined with or wrapped around cognitive strategy and skill that our best teachers have known forever? But I love that these sciences have filled in um, a research base where our best teacher intuitions were operating prior. I completely agree. So I guess, I, you know, I think of some of the things we're trying to help kids with in terms of engagement and motivation, um, like we know that having books that you are interested in reading, all of us know this who are readers, a book right. I'm interested in reading, I finish that thing in a weekend. If I'm like, eh, yeah. it's fine, I'll take, I'll take weeks to finish it, right? Um, yeah. Or um, knowing that um, if I have a purpose for reading, I have a plan for reading, I'm more likely to be engaged with the reading and more motivated to read it because there's a reason why I want to read it. And I think of strategies as a way that could potentially help a student, like breaking down for them how, what are the steps to choosing a good book? Or how exactly do I make a good plan and stay focused on my plan as I read? I don't know if you think that's a misinterpretation of strategies or, or what you think about that idea. I think the toughest part from a motivation and engagement perspective is we know that um, connecting with the child's interests can be a very powerful motivator. Um, and we also know that being literate and reading um, in relation to things that we want to do um, individually or with groups of people is really powerful, but often the curriculum operates against that. You know, like mm -hmm. in elementary school, a lot of the curriculum is about stuff that we think students don't know. That's why they're in school to learn it, right? And then the way that a lot of classrooms are set up is um, is more individual and collaborative. And so it that sort of runs against the um, experience that I hope most of us have with reading after formal schooling, which is, you know, we read to talk about stuff we've read with, with friends. We read to solve problems in, let's see, in our garden, in our family, you know, like mm -hmm. all, all mm -hmm. these things. And, but the curriculum is structured in a way that, um, you know, we have kids move from period to period and we, we still have a lot of walls between the different disciplines and, and reading is offered separately. You know, I think this is a lot of the reason why problem-based learning is, is so popular and, and rightly so, because it, um, it sees literacy and reading more as a tool than an endpoint. And, and it seems it's social action and problem solving as the, the, the really the appropriate end of, of what we do with what we read as opposed to answering questions. Yeah. Well, you're right that there are a lot of mandates on teachers and programs they must use or particular practices that administrators expect to see. But if you, Dr. Peter Afflerbach, could go in and design a third grade classroom where there weren't those kinds of constraints, knowing what you know about the research around motivation, engagement, self-efficacy, attributions, all that. What would that look like? 
How would the how would the reading day go? What what kinds of reading stuff would kids be doing? What would it look like? Well, you know, the the school structure would be really important uh, as it impinges on the classroom structure. And like one one of the things that I would strongly advocate for is that um a second grade teacher starting in late August or September, um, which is pretty common in the states that I've lived in, um, is not only looking at score profiles in reading and writing and math, but also looking at um, a, a reliable, um, consistent set of assessments for children and how, uh, how they become engaged, how they have been motivated or not motivated, um, how their self-efficacy is, um, and what, to what do they attribute success or failure. I would have a classroom where um, there's the acknowledgement of very wide individual differences among students in, in all of the areas that I've been droning on about this morning. And um, No, you're not droning. <laughs> well, so helpful. Well, um, no droning. Well, that because I, I'm assuming that I'm going to be working with a mandated curriculum, something like that. I'm, I'm going to be looking for where in strategy and skill instruction do I have the best opportunity to look for um, building self-efficacy? And what are my, um, like, what teacher verbalizations and what um, modeling and explaining can I do throughout the school day that um, introduce a message and then just consistently reinforce it? And then can I advocate for a school-wide approach to these things? You know, like, I don't want kids only getting a boost to motivation and engagement in reading class. Um, and the things that work in reading class um, will work in mathematics. So individual opportunities to work on uh, things where small group, whole group are just not going to do the trick. Um, but also, um, you know, like collaborative work, problem-based learning with small groups, um, shared, um, you know, like towards the more joyful end of the curriculum, um, whole group experiences. Thank you so much for spending time with me and for your sure. scholarship and uh, for your writing. I, I'm going to link to your book in the show notes and I hope everyone checks it out. Again, thank you so much for your time. I am so excited to talk about practical takeaways with my colleagues, Gina Dignan. Lainey Powell and Liam Mercantini Leibowitz. Welcome, you three. I'm so excited to talk to you. Let's talk about that practical application of that message, that terminology, language, the words we use to call things and what they really mean matters a lot. Practically mm -hmm. speaking, if you're a leader of a building or if you're a teacher um, and you're working vertically to align language, like how do how how have you tried to do this or lead teachers with this? And your work with them. One of the things we just did in a school here on Long Island was trying to re-envision the beliefs and values the school has or the district has around literacy. And when everyone, you know, laid out on the table what their beliefs and their values were, it looked like different things. Yet when they said more about it, it, we were saying the same thing. Oh, interesting. And so we came to this common language through first just putting out what is it that we believe in. And then after we saw, you know, the similarities between those patterns. And then we put a name to it and we said, instead of calling it this, this or that, this is what this district is going to call this. 
and it helped us to move forward um, in having much more productive conversations because at first it seemed confusing and misleading. Um, it seemed like we were all over the place, but really we all did have the same values and beliefs. But until we named it and used those words to discuss it, we were not thinking we were on the same page. What a valuable exercise. And I'm thinking having administrators at the table, coaches at the table, maybe a teacher lead from every every um, grade level at the table to be part of those conversations could be so, so valuable. Gina, I know you've been doing some work um, supporting whole school change and some of the districts that you're working in. Are there any ideas that you got from Peter's conversation that you'd want to share? Yeah, um, I agree with what um, Leah was just saying. Um, I've done similar work with uh, schools around just sort of settling on the basic kind of language that you're going to use for ideas or categories. But then I think about, um, and I've used sort of your progression for vocabulary around then how do we explain it? right? Like, how do you explain this? Or how do you take the definition and then use that as a lens to go in and out of classrooms and then explain, this is what we mean by engagement. Mm. This is how it can look in K1 mm. and 2. This is how it can look in 3, 4, and 5, 6, mm -hmm. 7, and 8. And also um, thinking about, you know, how you talk to kids around what engagement looks like or feels like. Um, that's something that I got from um, the talk just now is sort of that kind of coaching that teachers can do around um, reminding kids what it feels like to be successful. And there was one part where he was like, my close friend, Peter Johnston. And I was like, <laughs> oh, I've okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I have yeah. his books. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I was thinking about how you referenced Peter Johnston as well in the specificity of feedback. And I think it kind of goes together with what Leah is saying is sort of how can we be specific as leaders with our school staff, right? And like meeting them where they are and, and having them know what it feels like to be successful, right? And then there's the other step of how can teachers talk to mm -hmm. kids and remind them as specifically as they can about what they did when they were successful. And I think he said something about, um, you know, the more specific you are, the more you can build self-efficacy and metacognition within children, because sometimes students can't do that for themselves yet. Well, I love this um, idea of, um, you know, having really clear terms, having a definition of what we mean, examples especially grade by grade examples of what of what the what that can look like and practice looking for it and celebrating success that seems like a recipe for school focus mm -hmm. and to have a really targeted mission driven um ability to block out distractions um kind of kind of a focus at the school level let's shift gears yeah. now and talk about um this idea of strategies being explicit step-by-step how-tos. You know, I'm all about that. I'm <laughs> really clear, explicit language. Um, any thoughts about that part of the conversation? I think you all want to share. I think that it was so powerful when he said, it's not just that, you know, we need kids to have strategies, but we have to understand why are we giving them the strategies? And it's like, 
almost I'm going to offer you these strategies to help you become more skillful. There's that that research around conditional knowledge. So when do I apply the strategy? And the why do I apply the strategy? And I agree, Leah, that his message of layering in the the thinking about motivation, engagement, efficacy on top of the strategy instruction by making it more purposeful, more tied to their goals, more aligned um, to this belief that you can do this. And I know you can. It's not like an extra thing. Um, it's it's just a layer within the strategy instruction. Mm-hmm. I, I love that. Mm-hmm. Lainey, what were you thinking? I was just remembering how I love his this phrase, and I've used this with teachers before, um, that he we're making the invisible visible for kids um, mm-hmm. because reading is something that we, I think, sort of take for granted as skilled readers about the enormous sophistication that happens, um, even just like on a neurological basis when you're going from print to sounds to speech to meaning. Yeah. And I think that just everything Peter said just sort of reaffirmed the importance of setting up your classroom in a way where you can meet with kids because how are you going to build up their self-efficacy? How are you going to be specific in your feedback Mm -hmm. to them if you don't have that time to meet with kids or have time for to set up for kids Mm -hmm. to meet with each other? For listeners who may not be familiar with conferring, um, or different kinds of conferences. Let's just describe a couple of different conference types so they can visualize how that might go. So one conference type I know we all like to start with teaching teachers about is a compliment conference, right? So does anyone want to take that one and explain what it is or describe what it looks like so people who are unfamiliar can visualize it? Sure. It is... Um a wonderful entree into conferring. Um, Teachers tend to gravitate towards this. It's quick. It's like a minute and a half. And you just simply are noticing and naming for readers or writers um, some habits and skills that are serving them and highlighting that for them in really specific ways um, to build rapport, to build trust, to build confidence, and also to increase the likelihood that that student continues that behavior because you kind of highlighted what they're doing and tied it to an important reading or writing skill. Beautifully explained. Thank so you. So like if you're, you know, if I write, if, let me just give an example. So if you notice that a child is in a chapter book and is talking across chapters, you might say, I noticed that you're coordinating information across chapters. And that's really important because in these kinds of books, the, the plot is going to develop and change across the chapters and not, you know, rise and fall within one chapter. Um, so keep doing that. Yeah. Beautiful example. And then once we've got those kinds of conferences going, those are something you can use all year long at any time, especially I think for children whose self-efficacy you're trying to build. You're trying to, like you said, give them lots of opportunities to be successful and point out those successes, which builds trust and also helps them become aware that they're capable learners. Um, So that's a good tool to always have. And then you might do a research complement teach conference where you're not just complimenting, but you're also offering a strategy and then some feedback. If we think about that conference structure, I wonder about this idea of self-efficacy as a lens, like the way the micro interactions we're having Mm -hmm. with students during that are going to be so important not to make them feel like, well, I guess I now need to teach you this strategy because you're not doing it right. That tone, right, or that approach is not going to build self-efficacy. But if you say to them, like, what are some little moves within 
So research compliment teacher, I'm going to figure out what they need, give them a compliment, give them a strategy, and give them feedback and support. What are some little moves in there that you think support the self-efficacy? I always like to think about what goal it is that I see on the hierarchy as being their need. So let it be that character is where I believe they need to become more skillful. I might think about what do they know or what are they doing as readers to attend to the plot and the setting of the story, the goal before character, and give a really nice compliment that's specific to that kind of plot work they're facing and say, because you're so good at, insert plot uh, description here, you are ready to, and now insert what that goal is going to be. You're now ready to see how these characters are so much more complicated and they have more than one side to them. And you're ready to do that because you're able to see that in the plots of your stories, there was more than just one big problem. There's smaller problems that are happening because of that big problem. Back to that Peter Johnston language, right? Those language nuances. And now you're ready for, or, yeah. oh, you know what the next thing we could try yeah. is? Or like, yeah. like it's exciting and, mm-hmm. and you're hopeful that it's going to be successful. It matters so much. Yeah. It's so empowering. It's so empowering. Yeah. Leah, yeah. if I heard a teacher yeah. talk to me like that versus yeah. Lainey, you know what you're not doing? <laughs> or, you know, I just. Well, it, how, about, how about the. That is unbelievable that you're able to see how there's so many different things, but what you're not doing. And yeah. we're. Yeah. Away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I. I, as you were um, giving your example, Leah, I was looking on page 22 of um, Reading Strategies 2.0, mm-hmm. the little um, orange box, Principles of Effective Feedback. And I was like, it was encouraging. It's relevant. <laughs> it's specific. You know, it's almost like I was going through this as like just checking like, you know, what you were saying and how it was specific to yeah. the student's goal and strategy it was generalizable, it was encouraging, and it was actionable, and it was brief, but all in the same time focused on strengths. Peter acknowledged that often the curriculum battles against sort of some of the practices and even some of the ideal things he suggested should be in classrooms. Um, So, and I think we all know there's real things that teachers battle against as far as, um, you know, maybe you know, programs or top-down things. As what I always say um, when anyone asks me about resources, you know, which is the best resource for phonics? What do you think the best? And my answer always is the teacher, right? If you think about making the teacher your resource, the resources that you invest in are then just the tools they use to address the strengths and the needs of the children that they're working with. So, it's about that shift in thinking of what I purchase is going to fix, you know, the gaps that I'm noticing because it's not. I think like what you said, Leah, if you invest in teachers, mm-hmm. we all know that's what the research says, right? The number one thing that makes a difference is the teacher. Um, and, you know, they they need the tools, but they also need sort of the permission and the trust to, to do what they know is right. And yeah. I just don't. I don't know if yeah. all teachers feel like they have that right now. And uh, listening to Peter made me think like, you know, we need to kind of, when we're working with teachers, increase their self-efficacy, <laughs> you know, in themselves, right? Because it's like, Absolutely. you are the one making that. Yeah. 
You've got this. You have the knowledge. Absolutely. Absolutely. I believe in you. Exactly. Exactly. Well, let's end there for today. Lainey, Gina, Leah, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And thank you for listening. Please support the To The Classroom podcast by sharing, subscribing, or leaving a review on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. Learn more about me and my work at my website, www.jenniferceravallo.com.